Water, water everywhere. But is it safe to drink? Chemicals that can cause cancer, disrupt endocrine systems, or cause neurological damage are increasingly being found in our drinking water. Chemicals from fracking, chemicals from plastics, chemicals from the manufacture or disposals of things we use every day. We can't live without water, but it's too late to stop the pollution of our water with chemicals. This is the chemical industry's problem, but they aren't taking responsibility. This is our problem now, figuring out how to make our water safe. And this is Green Street. again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, authors, reporters, advocates, and sometimes even politicians who can help you understand a little more about what is actually going on around you and how you and your family can live a safer and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Clean water is absolutely essential to our survival on Earth and to our personal health. Over the past hundred years, we've been involved in a battle with companies that make and sell chemicals to keep those chemicals out of our water. We've passed laws, prosecuted offenders, spent billions of dollars of taxpayer money cleaning up toxic chemicals that are wending their way through the environment and into our water supply. But it's beginning to dawn on scientists and government leaders that we have lost that battle, that our water is irrevocably and permanently contaminated with chemicals, and that now we must spend billions more of your dollars trying to find ways to clean up the water that comes out of your tap. Today on Green Street, we'll talk with an expert on how to make sure the water that you and your family drink is as clean and healthy as possible. It's something every family needs to know, so stay tuned for that. But first, here's Patty with news from the Green Street Newsroom. What do you got for us today? Always interesting stuff. Of course. Today is no exception. Okay. So this is published in EHN, or Environmental Health News, written by Marina Schaufler, and it is entitled PFAS, or PFAS, in Household Waste May Be Going Airborne. As states work to limit the use of PFAS, one path for their spread is often overlooked. Incineration of consumer waste, such as clothing, textiles, food packaging, paints, and electronics. Regulatory agencies are paying some attention to the PFAS waste stream, such as contaminated leachate from landfills. However, about 12% of the U.S. waste stream goes to the country's 75 aging municipal solid waste incinerators, with minimal research on likely byproducts of burning PFAS-tainted trash. Ingesting contaminated water and food pose the highest known risk for PFAS exposure, which is linked to multiple negative health outcomes, including some cancers, reproductive problems, and birth defects. Airborne emissions from incinerators could be spreading PFAS significant distances, researchers warn, increasing the risk of contaminated water and soil downwind of facilities. Research in Europe suggests waste incinerators are contributing to plumes of airborne PFAS pollution, but U.S. regulators are not yet tracking this threat. Dubbed forever chemicals, PFAS are notoriously long-lived due to strong carbon-fluorine bonds. EPA's research suggests that these chemicals are not really broken down at normal incinerator temperatures. 
Much is currently unknown about how PFAS compounds behave during incineration, said a spokesperson for EPA's Office of Research and Development, explaining that PFAS molecules at low temperatures may not break apart or may decompose partially and recombine to form new PFAS. EPA has no field testing underway to determine what kinds or levels of PFAS may be emitted through municipal waste incineration and no timeline for testing. But a spokesperson wrote that characterizing these emissions remains an EPA priority. Meanwhile, Europe has begun assessing potential public health and environmental risks from PFAS exposure linked to waste incineration. Testing incinerator emissions is complicated by the daunting number of PFAS compounds, upwards of 9,000. If the European hypothesis that incinerators are emitting PFAS proves true, where do those molecules go? The path and distance that airborne molecules travel depends on temperature, humidity, and wind speed, and when the compounds shift from a gas to a particle. Legacy forms of PFAS, manufactured prior to 2015, have been found at both poles due to atmospheric transport, and the Gen X replacement, which EPA describes as more mobile and equally persistent, is now moving around the globe, even turning up in Arctic waters. Atmospheric deposition is unquestionably one of the roots of PFAS contamination, and it's gaining attention. From a scientific perspective, it's fascinating. From an environmental health and human health perspective, it's pretty scary. So that's how it got to the North Pole and yeah. the South Pole. Is, yeah. We're burning it. Oh, we're burning it, yeah. Burning it turns into... Yeah. Well, wow. I mean, it goes into the trash. Look at all the things that contain PFAS. I mean, just think of it. It's, you know, it's, it's takeout food containers, uh, you know, microwave popcorn bags, clothing, you know, stain-resistant carpets and furniture and upholstery fabrics. and I mean, all that stuff I mean, is just like ongoing. Okay. Thanks. What else you got? Yeah, another one. Um, this was published in Salon and written by Matthew Rotza. And the title is, Plastic Pollution Could Make Much of Humanity Infertile. Since the start of the 2020s, humanity has faced worldwide calamity after worldwide calamity, all of them raising questions about our survival as a species. The COVID-19 pandemic has already claimed millions of lives and not yet finished its rampage. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has raised the specter of nuclear holocaust, which many assumed has subsided with the end of the Cold War. Even as these problems worsen, climate change continues to quietly creep along in the background, overheating the planet for future generations. Yet what if, on top of all these things, there is an even more dystopian crisis in the offing? one in which humans are no longer able to reproduce without artificial help because we have filled the environment with chemicals that have altered our bodies. Scientists believe this is not only possible, it is likely to happen within our lifetimes. Understanding why involves three statistics. First, that a human male who has fewer than 15 million sperm per milliliter is considered infertile. Second, that in the 1970s, sperm counts in Western countries showed an average of 99 million sperm per milliliter. And third, that this number has dropped to 47 million sperm per milliliter by 2011. Scientists agree that plastic pollution is a likely culprit, and those are chemicals within everyday plastics known as endocrine disruptors. 
These chemicals, including a range of phthalates and bisphenols, are literally inescapable. They can be found in the dishware, food cans, and containers from which you eat your food, and in the water bottles and other plastic receptacles from which you drink. They are in virtually all of your commonly used household electronics, your eyeglass lenses, your furniture, and even on any commercial receipts that come from a thermal printer. Because endocrine disruptors are in pesticides, they have also entered the foods that we eat thanks to the agriculture industry. Even without pesticides, though, we would still wind up eating these endocrine disruptors. Microplastics, that is plastic particles which are five millimeters or less across in length, have entirely covered the planet. Animals accidentally eat microplastics all the time, and plants regularly absorb them through their roots. Humans themselves ingest the rough equivalent of a credit card's worth of plastic each week. Not surprisingly, the plastics industry and others that rely on these chemicals dispute that the endocrine disruptors are responsible for the drop in sperm counts. Plastic companies also have an advantage because plastics are so pervasive that it is difficult to design controls where plastic can be excluded as a factor. The plastics industry uses this terrible situation to try to claim that we don't have enough evidence to be sure that these chemicals are dangerous. Dr. Shanna Swan at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City says, quote, Chemicals in plastics, phthalates, bisphenols, and others, as well as pesticides, lead, and other environmental exposures are linked to impaired reproduction, including sperm count and quality. Some, like phthalates and BPA, have a short half-life in the body, four to six hours. So it is possible to reduce the body's exposure if we can stop using products containing these. Low-income communities can't afford to buy their way out of the problem by purchasing organic, unprocessed foods, safer cosmetics, etc., which are usually more expensive, Swan explained. But the mass infertility scenario is a threat to everyone, not just the disadvantaged. I mean, how many times can we talk about plasticizing chemicals, about bisphenols and phthalates and all these things that interrupt the normal, you know, hormonal processes in our bodies? How many times before something happens? I mean, as with everything else, we need to go to the source and stop using plastic. We need to find alternatives. And consumers have a big role to play here in terms of turning, no question. turning off the plastic tap. No question. They're the ones who can do it, and right. really nobody else can do it. Right. And we talked about you know this New York proposal that's in the governor's budget for extended producer responsibility, or EPR, and the producers are not really interested in not, you know, not producing plastic. It's making money for them. What a world we live in. I got one more. Okay. I got one more. Let's stop talking about it. It's all so negative. Hope you have something happy to talk about today. All right. This is the last one, and it is uh, published in Greenpeace or on Greenpeace's um, website, and it is written by Tyler Cruz. The title is Change the Code, Not the Climate. A campaign to push Bitcoin to change its software code to use far less energy was launched by the Environmental Working Group, Greenpeace USA, and several groups battling Bitcoin mining facilities in their communities. Decrying Bitcoin's growing greenhouse gas pollution, the campaign asks Bitcoin to change its code, not the climate. The campaign website, cleanupbitcoin.com, enables the public to join the campaign. Bitcoin uses a software code, proof of work, 
that requires the use of massive computer arrays to validate and secure transactions. Based on estimates by the University of Cambridge, these currently use as much electricity in a year as Greece, Sweden, or the Netherlands. Yet Bitcoin's use of electricity is expected to grow. It increases along with its price. A recent article in Nature Climate Change estimated that if its use of Bitcoin becomes widespread, it could push the world beyond the two degrees Celsius warming threshold for climate catastrophe. After China banned Bitcoin mining, many operations moved to the United States. Some of them are buying up polluting coal plants that were on the brink of bankruptcy and scheduled to be retired, and even plants that burn coal waste, which emits up to 50% more greenhouse gases than even dirty coal itself. Others are using fracked gas, which also heats the planet. According to a recent report in the scientific journal Jewel, Kentucky produces more carbon from cryptocurrency mining than any other state. However, many of these operations are coming to distressed areas long exploited for energy. It is frustrating to see these financial incentives benefit companies working in communities that may not even have reliable water. Bitcoin miners are eager to take advantage of lax regulation in Pennsylvania. Power plants burning highly polluting waste coal have been turned into mining operations. Portable generators and mining hardware has shown up unannounced at fracked gas well sites. Not only are taxpayers and ratepayers paying the price, we all will pay the price of increased pollution. With 20% of the nation's climate-killing Bitcoin mining, New York has become the Wild West for a risky currency favored by authoritarian states and criminals that's threatening our very real $3 billion a year agritourism industry, including 60,000 jobs. It's not enough to talk about climate. Governor Hochul has a responsibility to lead, not just New York, but the nation by acting now. This is a really great campaign they got going because, um, you know, although changing the code is going to result in a lot of costs for the people who have invested in Bitcoin, you know, the alternative is to really, really ramp up our greenhouse gases and accelerate climate change. And I'm not sure in this day and age that investors are really willing to be saddled with that reputation. I think they said there are like 30 people in the world who could make this change. Just make the change, and there you go. Change the code. Change the way you calculate. Change the code, not the climate. Change the code, not the climate is a good campaign slogan. Cleanupbitcoin.com is the website. I urge everybody to go there, sign up, support this idea. The more people do, um, the more powerful their campaign And the more pressure we put on them. All right. Thanks, Patty. You are welcome. You wake up in the morning and probably the very first thing you do involves water. Either you make coffee or tea or you take a shower or you brush your teeth or something that involves close contact with water. You count on your water being clean, free from things that could harm you. But is it? Is your water safe and clean or does it contain a cocktail of toxic chemicals that have found their way into your water? Here's the thing, it doesn't take a lot of a toxic chemical to contaminate our water supply. Water experts talk in parts per billion or even parts per trillion. Tiny, tiny amounts of these chemicals can cause real damage within our bodies. 
but cleaning up our drinking water is like playing a game of whack-a-mole. As soon as water experts have identified a toxic chemical in the water and found some method to remove it, another one comes along and we start all over again. So while municipal water companies struggle to keep up with the constant flow of new chemicals and new solutions, what can families do to make sure their water is as clean as possible? Today on Green Street, we're delighted to welcome water expert Paul Traffus. Paul is a lifetime environmentalist and a master certified water specialist. He's designed systems for the EPA, the DEC, the Brooklyn National Laboratory, IBM, and thousands of residential homes. Paul has worked on many EPA Superfund contamination sites, remediating chemicals including pesticides, industrial solvents, MTBE, and the latest forever chemical, PFOA. Paul is the founder and president of Aquafuture Incorporated, which has been in the water purification business since 1984. He designed and installed the water purification system we use in our own home, and we were so impressed with his knowledge and experience that we asked him to be our guest here on Green Street. Patty and I talked with Paul over the weekend. Here's our interview with Paul Traffis. I had gone to school for environmental sciences, so I, I had a background in science and uh, environmental sciences. And my father worked for a company called Ecologic Instrument back in those days, doesn't exist anymore. And they were making equipment to test water contaminants. So he allowed me to play with some of the instruments. And I did some volunteer work for the town of Smithtown. This is back in the 70s. I mean, I was in high school and I would take samples of water around the area in the ponds and lakes. And um, it, it put a little seed in my head that there's a problem. Yeah. So back in 1981, my wife was expecting our first child. And I said to her, gosh, you know, you can't drink this water. You know, the doctor said you got to drink eight glasses a day. Back in those days, bottled water was not a popular thing. A couple brands on the market. Somehow I, I got a job with an electronic company and the first day there's a salesperson sitting in back of me and he had a bottle of giant bottle of vodka. <laughs> so I thought, when does the happy hour start? You know, <laughs> no, no, no. Gosh, this is my distilled water. I, I go to a homeopathic doctor, which I never heard of. I never heard that terminology. And I said, tell me more. You know what? So he told me he had this water distiller. And, and uh, I said, just give me the brand. Let me find out who makes this device. So I bought the water distiller. It was very Rube Goldberg-y looking. You know, it had to have a bottle. Looks like I was a moonshiner. <laughs> but, it, but it did make very, very pure water. So then from there on, I got interested. And I called the manufacturer. I decided, gosh, let me, let me sell these. You know, in a part-time endeavor, try to help people. Because there was really nowhere to turn back then if you had contaminated water. And out here in Suffolk County, we had a lot of private wells um, out east. Naturally, it was mostly well water, private. Everybody had their own well and a lot of pesticides going on and, and, and all fertilizers and that. That was really the only product back then that truly worked. The Trade Association, which I belong to, the Water Quality Association, which is always a very good resource to click on to for, uh, for people mm -hmm. uh, to find either certified people or just information about uh, contaminants and how to treat them. So that organization way back then was kind of a, just a water softener organization. 
Um, that's all that was going on. I was not interested in that. I was interested in the health aspect of it. So distillation was at the top of the list. Reverse osmosis, believe it or not, was in its real infancy stage, stages at that point. It was maybe 50% <laughs> removal of contaminants, really? which really wasn't good enough for me, um, where the distiller was better than 99 However, over the years, these things have improved and membrane technology now is, is tremendous. So I continued on. I, I felt the need for purified water. I was gaining an audience and I got out of the electronic uh, industry. And here I am, 37, 38 years later, uh, doing <laughs> what I love. And it's more of a necessity, I feel, today because of the the varying amount of contaminants that are out there. Right. Let's actually talk a little bit about that because our listeners are, are very familiar with lead contamination in water. And of course, that has been highlighted um, with the Flint, Michigan uh, crisis. And also, you know, it, schools are concerned that they have lead in their water. Communities are concerned. Even here on Long Island, you know, even if you if you're getting your water from a very safe uh, aquifer, like, uh, you know, like the Lloyd Aquifer, which is our deepest aquifer here on Long Island, right. you may have leaded pipe delivering that, that water. Um, so let's just talk about these common contaminants, starting with lead, because I think that's the big one. Yeah, and, and, and the lead naturally was used years ago as a piping material. Right. So back in the early days of, uh, you know, building New York City, Boston, the, these areas in, in the Northeast here, the pipes were actually pure lead. There are actually still old lead pipes in the ground delivering water. Hmm. And lead naturally is a soft metal and water is a universal solvent and it will absolutely dissolve the lead. If the water has a low pH, it will be far more aggressive. Naturally, we've gotten away from lead pipes. However, up until 1987, solder that is used to join pipes together in houses was, was the go-to material to fuse copper pipes together. Mm. And it would be pure lead back in those days. Wow prior to 1987. So if you have a house that's built before 87, you are going to have some lead joints in the pipes. Also, what people don't realize, brass is an alloy of copper and a few other goodies. And lead was a component of brass. So any of these brass connections, including your faucet at the sink, up until only about four years ago, that's it. They got rid of the the brass, the lead from the brass. Hmm. So, so if you have a house, again, with a faucet that's 10 years old, you're most likely going to have lead in it. And wow. what happens with lead, as the water sits in a pipe overnight, it will start to pull the lead out of the pipe into the water. So you're what they call the first draw of water, meaning in the first thing in the morning, when you go to fill up your, your teapot or coffee pot, 
if you don't run the water for a minute, you're going to have this big slug of lead coming into your coffee pot. Holy cow. Yeah. And and, and it's kind of interesting that it's only been, uh, I'm going to say, four years since the state of New York um, kind of banned the uh, the brass, the lead brass products. Uh, California naturally is always ahead of the curve mm-hmm. and, they, and they've been on that program for years, but for some reason it takes a while for the, for the wind to blow East <laughs> and arrive at our doorstep. Okay. So you're saying that if somebody has a 10 year old home that, yeah. and they have brass fittings on their, on their sinks that yeah. those brass fittings should probably be replaced because they contain lead or yeah. You literally let your water run first thing in the morning for a minute or so correct. so that the the water that was sitting in the pipes and being, um, you know, being affected or actually the lead was leaching into it, um, yes. you know, is something that you should do as a um, just as a matter of course. Absolutely. It should become a habit. Mm-hmm. The problem with that um, theory or method it's kind of easy to do first thing in the morning. You, you, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to run the water for one minute before I fill up my coffee machine. But throughout a day, you just are not, you know, you're going to walk up to the sink and get a glass of water. And you don't want to stand there for one minute running this whole thing. So it, it kind of backfires because it just, people just don't get into that kind of habit. It's very difficult to do that. Well, and they don't want to waste water either. They don't want to waste water, but but I think the idea here is that the longer the water sits in the pipes, um, the more lead you're going to have. And so absolutely, if you you haven't used it, if you've been out at work all day uh, and you come home and you're ready, you're ready to start dinner, you know, yeah. that's a time to that's a time to run your run your water again. Yeah. Or or in that morning when you're running the water, then you fill up your, your teapot, you fill up a nice big pitcher and you simply mm-hmm. put it in the refrigerator where, where then right. you have it for the rest of the day or dinner. Yep. Oh, is there an is there an easy test for lead? I mean, I hate to have people, you know, run out, call a plumber, replace all their fixtures unless they're certain that there's. Lead oh, in. yeah. You know, they're probably if 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 you Google things, they do sell these little home kits. They may have it in in um, like the Lowe's and the Home Depot and that these little test kits that'll test a few things, the pH, the hardness of the water and the lead. But these little kits are available uh, and not a bad idea for a homeowner to do, like I said, a, a first drawer, which just get in the morning, get up. If you're going to test the water, test that first few ounces that come out of the, uh, the faucet mm-hmm. and then run it for a minute or so and then do a retest. So they should always get two of these tests and see what's going on. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is water expert and master certified water specialist, Paul Traffis. Okay, so the, so the lead problem is that you may potentially still have um, some lead fittings in your, in your pipes and that your brass fittings that you may have uh, on your faucets in your house may also contain lead if they are more than five years old. That's correct. Yes. Okay. All right. So now let's go to some of our more <laughs> our more recent contaminants. Yes. Um, people are very concerned now about PFAS. PFAS yes. seems to be everywhere, and it is not just here. 
uh, on the East Coast, but it is literally all over the country in water supplies. So how are we dealing with that? Because that's a forever chemical. Yeah, so my first introduction to PFOA or PFAS family was about four years ago because I'm a subcontractor for the EPA. So I got a call. There's a giant contamination site in upstate New York, a town called Hoosick Falls, and they have this chemical in the water, which honestly, I had never heard of it. Neither did anybody else. Yeah. So me and my, my team, we went up there we, we, for a week of work. Uh, it was an EPA, it's actually a disaster area. So Homeland Security was on board with us. And we basically had to install um, these big carbon filters in all the houses uh, up there. And, th- and this stuff was in not only the private houses, but in the public town water. And at some point, so the Hoos, uh, the Hoosick River, I believe, runs through that area. And years ago, there were factories. Uh, one of the factories was, of course, making this chemical. And they were just dumping it. And in going to a lot of these farms and installing these filters, what I learned that the company was actually paying farmers to dump this chemical on their property. They would have some back area that was unusable for farming and these the uh, chemical company would just come and dump these drums of this spent mm. stuff mm. and it infiltrated now this is you're, you're talking a, a well over 30 years ago that these this stuff was being made not on a test in the water so the epa did not have a protocol for testing this stuff now, four years ago, there were only two laboratories in the whole country that could even test for it. And this stuff is tested down into the parts per trillion. Most of the contaminants that you are common with could be parts per million, uh, parts per billion if you're testing pesticide groups and solvents. But now this is a whole new ball game. And like, like you mentioned, this is what they call a forever chemical, meaning it is so stable and, and tight in the molecular structure that it does not break down, which made it an excellent product for what they used it for, which is uh, your non, uh, non-sticking uh, pots and pans like Teflon, mm-hmm. also the non-staining carpet fibers like the stain master that's impregnated into the uh, fibers, works a wonder. They use it in firefighting foam. Uh, I'm sure there's many other applications, but uh, there was no testing protocol even four years ago, and the EPA that was uh, running this program for us to put the filters in basically told me, you don't even want to brush your teeth with this stuff. Mm. So it was a real learning experience. However, um, the technology to remove it is an activated carbon product. Now, not all activated carbons are created equally. We, we have some that are designed to remove just simple chlorine or taste and odor. However, over the years, they've kind of fine-tuned these products. And um, one of the products that's out there is made by Calgon. It's called Filtrazorb 400. And there are probably other companies out there that make a, uh, a similar carbon product, but the Calgon is that's that's the go to um, tool in this business, and it will remove it 
highly effectively, I mean, 100%. But of course, it has to be monitored. So Hoosick Falls still has all these carbon filters installed and the EPA has a testing program. And I think they've established a limit of federally of 70 parts per trillion. However, that seems rather high. Uh, many states have their own protocol and I can guarantee that New York has a much tighter uh, number on that. They may be down at 40 or something. We, we seem to be pretty good with that in this state. Uh, some states will use the federal level, but many of these states on the East Coast will have their own. Personally, I don't want any of that in my water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that's on a grand scale, removing it. A, a reverse osmosis type system will also, and the membrane of the reverse osmosis is very, very effective in removing uh, the PFAS chemicals. Not only the carbon, the carbon will do it, but the membrane will actually reject that chemical. Hmm. So why didn't you use the membrane in Hoosick Falls? Problem is that the membrane technology can only be applied on what we call a, a point of use application, meaning at a kitchen sink. I see. So that's not gonna take care of the showering. You say, well, why don't we install a reverse osmosis for a whole house? First, no, number one factor is it would be a huge amount of equipment. Mm. It would take up an entire garage. The, the wastewater that comes out of reverse osmosis would probably fill somebody's septic tank in a day or two. <laughs> because in a household, you're using hundreds of gallons of water for showering and washing and so on and so forth. So. And then also that water would be so pure that if you ran it through the plumbing of your house, you would really pull the lead out and, and also the copper. So it's, it's really not uh, a way to do it. It's, it's better to either use the carbon as a whole house for showering. And then if you wanna just have a backup polishing kind of filter, the reverse osmosis would be uh, a nice weapon for that. Wow. Okay. And since it's a forever chemical, this is a forever problem. Yeah. So it is what they call a bioaccumulating chemical, which means that it will accumulate in your body over time. So if you're drinking so many parts per trillion, this stuff gets attracted because it is a carbon-based compound. Uh, and, and we are basically carbon. Our body is a carbon organism. So those compounds like to get in there and some of them do break down, but not this one. So if you're drinking a constant little influx of this uh, chemical, you're going to, it's going to build up in your system. I'm gonna give you an example. A few years ago, they found the PFOA out in East Hampton in a town called Wainscott. There is an airport right there, East Hampton Airport, and the fire department apparently must practice their their skills and using the firefighting foam. So this stuff got into the water supply, a lot of private wells in the area. And there was a class action suit and the attorney had uh, somehow found me and asked me if I could do a talk to the town at the uh, town center. So after the talk, um, a fella came up to me with some test results of his blood and it showed that he had this PFOA in his bloodstream, which is pretty alarming. And, and if you're just drinking this year after year after year, especially if you're an infant, 
this stuff is going to build up and there you know you, you can read up on it it it's it can cause all kinds of cancers and and problems so it's not something that you want to consume so if you're doing this um this pfoa remediation or pfas the whole class yeah. of these yeah. chemicals remediation yeah. at the town level so they are putting in systems that are technically advanced is that correct no no not not, no. not at all they're using okay. the uh, what they call in the industry we call it bat bat best available technology mm -hmm. and that technology is available to the homeowner and also uh, a utility okay. so naturally the towns uh are installing which they have been for years they've been installing very large carbon filter systems before the PFO, they were installing these things also because they had contaminants such as MTBE, which was a gasoline additive, which I work mm -hmm. on in very long time now with the DEC mm -hmm. and pesticides and other industrial solvents. So the carbon, they're, they're using these carbon filters for these PFAS chemicals to get the water into regulation. Now, don't forget, regulation only means that you just complying with the standards of the day. So if you're allowed to have, let's say, the 70 parts per trillion, as long as they get it under those numbers, it could be 40 or whatever, they can sell you the water, which is all they have to do. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I believe that they do the best they can with with it but um as long as they can deliver that under 70 or if it's new york maybe it's under 40 parts per trillion that's like that with any chemical you can have nitrates in the water uh, at a level uh 10 parts per million is your is your limit on that if they have five parts per million you you're allowed to drink that right so the question is as they do more research on the toxicity of these chemicals and of the um, the minimum amount that can actually cause harm yeah. and find out that that it's really a very, very small amount, actually smaller than what the uh, the federal regulations or the state regulations allow. Absolutely. So then we then we look for new technology. So I guess that's you know, I mean, I was going to talk to you about one four dioxane, which I will, yeah. too, which is another yes. chemical of great concern yes. um, around here. But um, are they doing just constant research on providing better and better water treatment systems and who's looking at the sources of these contaminants and regulating them because isn't that really what we need to do? So if you're waiting for them to regulate and protect you, it's already too late. All right, uh, you're, you're sinking in the ocean and you've had your last gulp of water and then maybe somebody finally pulls you into the boat and pumps it out of you. <laughs> so this PFAS chemical has been around for decades. It's probably been in the water for decades. And the only reason, now this is the interesting part, back to the Hoosick Falls, how did they find this stuff considering that the town or, the, or the, even the EPA protocol didn't have any testing program for it? There was a private citizen in the town, a local attorney, that of course knew everybody and their brother and realized that in this town, there seemed to be a very high incident of very exotic cancers. Now, Hoosick Falls is a beautiful area. It's rolling hills of greenery, farms, it's lovely. It, it borders up against 
um, Bennington, North Bennington, Vermont. Lovely area. So I don't know how this guy really should have went to Las Vegas on the same day, but he managed <laughs> to send a sample of water to one of the only two companies in the United States that could test the PFAS. He didn't know what he was looking for, but he sent the sample out and it came back with this PFOA in it. He didn't know what the heck it was. He then uh, brought it to, I guess, the authorities there in the town and they didn't really know much about it either. And then the whole thing exploded. Then they found it all over the place. It's systemic at that point when it gets into the groundwater. Mm. And I remember on this one farm, the her well was somewhere over 300 feet deep. So this chemical, it doesn't happen overnight for water to get down 300 feet. No. And, and it's pretty rare to have a well at 300 feet also. Most people in these areas, as soon as they hit water, they, they could be down 100 feet and, mm -hmm. and they're going to grab it. Um, but this farm was kind of up on a hill. So if you're relying on these authorities, <laughs> they're, they're just behind on this stuff. They, years ago, the allowable limit for organic solvents was 50 parts per billion when I first started my business. And these are chemicals like trichloroethylene, which was very widely used and still widely used. It's a solvent. It's used in electronic applications. Um, your dry cleaning uh, fluids perk, you know, has a, a multitude of these chemicals in it. So that limit was uh, 50 parts per billion. It changed a few years later. Now, this is back in the 80s, and they lowered it to five parts per billion from 50 to five. Mm, mm. So I went down to the health department, which I, I knew these guys there. Uh, to ask them about it. And they had this giant map on the wall of Suffolk County with all these little pins. So they, like, I said, you know, what's what's going on with this? And well, you know, according to our data, uh, we have determined that the 50 parts per billion is dangerous. And you see all these little pins and these little clusters, and they call them these cluster spots where this chemical was prevalent that was over the five parts per billion and, and between the five and the 50. And there were a lot of these cancers. So they took the initiative then to change finally uh, and lower the standard down to five. However, people were drinking this. So now you relied on the health department or the EPA or whatever you want to call them. And they said that if you were drinking 40 parts per billion in 1983, don't worry about it. It's, mm. it's within regulation. Then you knock it down to five. Mm. This is called the, the guinea pig process. <laughs> And we wait to see. So how the the health department and that comes up with these numbers, according to <laughs> the health department told me, um, there is an allowable amount per capita per 10,000 people of uh, cancers within that 10,000 people. Once they start to see these numbers go up in that group, then they, with the research they have, whether it's the, that chemical or another chemical, they decide that, okay, uh, we need to change. So that's what happens. You, you know, it's like somebody that, are you allergic to eating uh, eggs? Well, eat an egg and find out, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that's how it all works. We are guinea pigs.
I want to just ask you a little bit about carbon filters. You've mentioned carbon a few times, and I'm sure yes. there are lots of our listeners out there who have yes. either carbon filters on their on their faucet in the sink, or they've got some sort of a sink top countertop, you know, carbon filter. They pour their water through and they think they're really, you know, taking out most of the bad stuff. Are they? Uh, these are these pour through devices that have a few ounces of carbon in them. And I don't know what kind of carbon, like I said, there are different types. And if you really look at the enclosure data with those products, there should be a, a little list of the impurities that it has been, I'll call validated to remove. And, and it must come with the product. It's in the literature. You'll most of the time notice that most of these things are only rated to remove chlorine. That's about it. <laughs> okay. They don't go beyond chlorine that. and bad taste. And, yes, and taste smell. and odor, which taste and odor can right. be subjective, you know. Right. So most of them don't go beyond that. So you're not going to rely on that to remove PFAS. Those are not registered to remove PFAS from water. They're typically using a carbon that is meant to remove simple chlorine. They're not going to these higher end carbons at all. And for the little bit of carbon they have in them, the lifespan can be quite short. So those devices are not something you would want to rely on to remove any of these kind of dangerous chemicals. Yeah. Now, if you have a more sophisticated carbon filter under a sink, with some uh, what they call carbon block filters. Generally, these devices will have uh, much better uh, removal ratings and they are tested actually to remove chemicals from water beyond the chlorine. But the carbon is what we call in the industry the, the, the workhorse. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not remove everything from water. It is not considered a purification product. It is considered a, a filtration product. So yes, it will indeed remove these organic compounds, uh, the pesticides, the PFAS chemicals, the industrial solvents, the gasoline derivatives. However, it's not going to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. It is not going to remove inorganic things, which is the other end of the spectrum of, of contaminants. Uh, salt, regular sodium chloride is used as a surrogate to determine if your product is going to be a water purifier. If that filter or that device cannot remove sodium chloride, it's not going to remove nitrates, it's not gonna remove arsenic, it's not gonna remove dissolved heavy metals at all. So the carbon is a, a one product that's used extensively you know, as a, a pre-filter or a post-filter, it is, it is absolutely necessary, but you need a string of uh, equipment in order to make what we call purified water, just like a meal. You just do not, you don't sit down and just eat a piece of steak with your meal and, and get nutrition. You've got to have the meat and potatoes and your vegetables. <laughs> and it's the same with water filtration. It's got to be combined with some other technology. And what makes carbon activated? When you, when you say activated carbon? Yeah, that's that a good mean? question. So today, the, the, in the early days, the, the, the activated carbon was a, what we call a coal-based product, um, let's say bituminous coal. 
and they heat it up in the absence of oxygen to a very, very high temperature. And it kind of pops like a piece of popcorn. So if you looked at it, it looks it's a granule. It doesn't look like much when you're looking at it. But if you looked under a magnifier or, or, uh, of some sort, you would see that it, it had all these little nooks and crannies in that. So these are called macropores and micropores. So what happens, these little uh, crevices in the carbon are these carbon sites. So an easy uh, thing to remember is that carbon has an affinity for carbon. So carbon removes carbon. So if it's a carbon-based compound, as that water is going through a bed of carbon, it's almost like a magnetism, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. And it attracts and, and sucks this stuff into these carbon sites. Now, different carbons have different pore structure. Some are designed, like I said before, to sim simply remove uh, gases, taste, and odor, like chlorine. Then you have different carbons that have a different structure, and, and they base them on this, what they call an iodine number. So if you look at specs on carbon, which is all, we, all, all this stuff is available online, if you go to Calgon Carbon, you can pull these data sheets, and you can see that some carbons will have an iodine number of uh, 800, and then some have uh, 1,100. And depending upon what you're trying to remove, you may, if it's a large uh, carbon pore structure, you have to use that appropriate carbon for that. Mm -hmm. um, they use the coal-based and they use now uh, coconut shell carbon, which was really not available you know, when I first started, but now it's widely used. It's a very, very good type of carbon for general usage. It'll remove uh, a lot of different compounds from water. It's kind of a go-to product. But sometimes if you've got to be very specific, you may have to elevate to one of these other uh, carbon products. But it's a whole science behind it. And you yeah. have to, yeah. you've got to really pick the right tool for the work. Just this may not be this may be out of your wheelhouse, Paul, but we're very concerned about what we are actually taking in when we drink uh, tea or we eat soup or whatever that's made with with made with water. Yeah. What about what about a shower with your pores absorbing all these chemicals when you don't have that filtration on it? Oh yes, um, oh yeah. This is this is a very big factor indeed. You figure the the biggest organ in our body is our skin, and it's breathing. <laughs> we have pores. Uh, also, when you're in the shower, the steam can contain these compounds. For instance, there are many of these compounds are what we call volatile chemicals, which means that they become a vapor at a low temperature. For instance, would be gasoline. We all know if you're pumping your gasoline, you, you smell it. it. It's coming out of the gas tank as you're putting it in. You have a very strong vapor of it. This is a volatile chemical. It, it becomes a vapor at room temperature. Unlike water, that becomes a vapor at 212 degrees. So some of these things have, you know, 80 degrees or even lower. So when you heat your water in your house and you're taking a shower, you're getting water that's probably, you know, 100 degrees or 105 degrees. I mean, it starts off much hotter than that, but you temper it down. But these chemicals will absolutely volatize in the shower. Uh, even your, your basic chlorine 
um, outgasses very quickly. And your what they call chlorinated byproducts. When you chlorinate water, depending upon what is in that water or any organic compounds from, from oak trees, you develop this chemical called chloroform. And that chloroform will absolutely uh, outgas in a shower and you will breathe it in. And, and the same with any of these other uh, volatile chemicals. Okay, so we didn't do we didn't do one four dioxane. No, which we um, can. So the one four dioxane is is the new kid on the block. I'll call it. <laughs> um, it's kind of one of these hidden things that where is this coming from? And all of a sudden, how is it in the news? No one's ever heard of this stuff. It's in so many home products. It's not funny, and you will not see it listed on your ingredient list. It is a subcomponent. If you have a shampoo or some um, cream or something of that nature, and you see sodium laureth sulfate in it, part of that is going to have this 1,4-dioxane. Um, so you're getting much more exposure to all these home products than in probably that's going to be in the water. So right now, there is no, f I'll call it formal federal testing on this 1,4-dioxane as far as a limitation of it. The towns, when I say the towns, um, you know, the, the town utilities are installing equipment to remove this stuff. This cannot be done at home right now. If anybody says they're doing it, please share it with the Water Quality Association <laughs> and all the other manufacturers <laughs> because they don't have a clue either. Number one, NSF, which is the National Safety Foundation, has a testing of stuff, whether it's water filters or all kinds of uh, things, products for your house. And with water filters, you submit your product to NSF. They test it for what, it, your, what your claims are to remove, but they also test it for what they call extractabilities, if there's any leaching coming out of these filters or products. Mm -hmm. They do not have, at this moment a testing protocol for 1,4-dioxane. So there is no manufacturer that is even sending their equipment into the laboratory because they don't know what to test it down to. Mm. Do you allow four parts or eight parts or 10 parts? Who knows? I spoke to NSF myself and that's what they told me. They, they, they said, don't even send your product here because we can't test it. <sighs> So the utilities right now are, are definitely moving forward. Actually, they've been working on it for a number of years now. I spoke to a, a, a company up in Canada that's assisting them in this. And what they do is they add an oxidizer to the water, uh, say hydrogen, strong hydrogen peroxide, not, not the stuff that you buy in a supermarket. That's a 3%, but you go up to like a 35% hydrogen peroxide and this is a very uh, powerful chemical. They inject the hydrogen peroxide into water, and then they have a, a super dose of ultraviolet light. This is not your home UV system. Uh, this is another level of magnitude. And they super zap this water that's been treated with the hydrogen peroxide. And it actually then breaks down the 1,4-dioxane into its elemental components of you know hydrogen and oxygen and, and carbon and that and and that's it they, they don't even have to filter it out at that point it's just been kind of decommissioned and uh and away it goes hmm. i'm sure there will be some 
technology that comes around. I will know actually this coming week because I'm going to be spending a week at a uh, water symposium down in Orlando. And I will see if there's anybody that's an expert in this that's developing anything. But so far, there is no equipment that is recognized to remove the 1,4-dioxane, let's say for a, for a home. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been water expert and master certified water specialist, Paul Traffis. If you missed any part of today's show or you want to listen again, you can always hear this and every Green Street show on our program website, greenstreetradio.com. There you can also sign up for program alerts and send us your feedback on the show. That's greenstreetradio.com, all one word. We'll put up some links to Paul's company on the Green Street show page and also some other organizations he mentioned so you can learn more about how and where to get more information about treating your water supply. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.